I want to um, continue the theme that we started uh, with the issue of the tongue. And I'm going to, uh, Mark has a CD there with a single song that some of you will recognize. This came from 1960, so you may be dating yourself somewhat if you remember the song. So go ahead and play that, Mark, and this will kind of set us up for what we're going to talk about today. You talk too much, you worry me to death You talk too much, you even worry my pet You just talk, talk too much You talk about people that you don't know You talk about people wherever you go You just talk, talk too much talk about people that you never seen you talk about people you can make me scream you just talk talk too much all right james chapter three we're going to talk about that i've been picking some independent topics for the summer ones that have practical application mostly and we're calling this today big mouth because as you'll see from the passage itself, that works. But I want to uh, leave the passage and its exposition till the second half of our discussion here. First, I want to, um, you you can find, by the way, that on page 855, and you can be ready for that, and I have some verses there in your bulletin you'll see but before we do that I want to read the article and uh, you can follow along that's in your bulletin what is holiness and sanctification now if you have been around churches for a while you know these terms probably but many people uh, not familiar or not having a church background don't really know what these terms mean or how they're used or their history behind them So I want to explain a little bit what we're talking about here because the subject clearly comes up uh, when it comes to how to live, how to practically apply the values of God in our lives or you might say the fruit of the Spirit in daily life. What does it look like and why? So what's the category it comes under and is it the same as how one becomes a Christian or receives eternal life? The answer is no, and here is why. Holiness and its root word holy gets a bad rap in common usage, but in the Bible, the concept is powerful and pervasive with 230 uses in the New Testament alone. The term that is often translated as holy is rooted in the Greek word hagios, also translated sanctified and saint, meaning literally set apart for God. The idea is purity, and light in contrast to the sin and darkness of the world around us. All of life is the intended application of holiness rather than just church or certain religious types of things. Our attitudes, actions, words, values, etc. should all be subjected to the test of Jesus' lordship. This is not a curse or a burden, but rather an opportunity to live as we were intended to live. Sanctification generally refers to a state of being. All believers are sanctified 
or set apart if they are indeed in Christ, but not all live it out successfully, and none live it out perfectly. The closer you get to the light, the more you notice the spots. Thank God daily that our own righteousness is not the basis of our relationship. And forget about instant experiences that will make you holy forever. Those experiences may be booths along the way, but you will always be a sinner saved by grace. It ain't over till it's over. Keep on keeping on. Position versus condition. We do not believe that sanctification is the means of salvation, but rather the corollary or result. When we receive Christ and are born again, we are put into Christ, and our before changes forever. But becoming a Christian is the first step in a lifetime of becoming Christ-like. Just as a baby is fully human long before he or she develops all the skills and abilities of the mature human, we are becoming in practice what we already are in Christ. Maturity and identity are not the same thing. This is a lifelong journey. And just let me remind you of something we speak about sometimes here in regard to the Lord's Supper. There are three tenses of freedom to celebrate. Number one, past. Freedom from the penalty of sin when we turn to Jesus. Number two, the present. Freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And number three, the future. Freedom from the actual presence of sin in heaven or for all eternity. I think I've told you this story before, but in uh, light of the paragraph on sanctification, you may know that there are certain churches that sort of, denominations that sort of specialize in sanctification. It's actually a category. If you look it up in, if you know anything about church history, you know there's a category of evangelical churches called holiness churches. And that's because they sort of specialize in the doctrine of sanctification. Some of these churches teach that you can have an experience, which they call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which does not have anything to do with gifts or speaking in tongues or anything like that, that some others would associate with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but that you can have an experience at which point after which you never sin again. That's the holiness experience uh, or the sanctification experience. I had experience with this as a new believer. Not that I ever thought of myself as having become entirely sanctified. But when I was a new believer, I was quite excited about it. And I was talking to my boss about it, who was also a Christian. And he was excited to hear my story that I had made that leap and, uh, and that change in my life. And, and then he said, well, that's good, but now you've got to start. Now you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit and entirely sanctified. He was of one of those churches that believed that. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, well, after you have this experience, you'll never sin again. And he says, take me, for example. I haven't sinned in 18 years since I had that experience. And uh, I thought it seemed somewhat illogical. So even as a new believer, I used my penchant for argumentation to... Um, demonstrate to him that he was being illogical with his doctrine of entire sanctification and I didn't intentionally do that but I was trying to discuss with him the problems with his belief and he got more and more frustrated and angry and finally he swore at me and walked away and the next day he came back and apologized and I said so 
what did that do to your 18 years of sanctification? <laughs> he said, oh, we don't call that sin. That was, I slipped. We call that slippage. And I thought, I've used that word many times since. Um, not everybody really buys it, but instead of confessing sin, you just confess your slippage. Kind of like your tire loses traction on the road, you know, you just slipped. Well, there is such a thing as slipping, like, for example, you fall down or something. You, don't, you forget to add numbers right in your bookkeeping. That's slippage, okay, but it's not sin. But there are some things that are sin, and there no, should be no problem with admitting to sin. And I don't think we are ever going to have any true victory over sin, in fact, unless we learn how to say it, how to admit it to God, admit it to ourselves, admit it to other people. There's a lot of pressure in modern society to not use that term or that concept. There's even a lot of pressure in Christian context to not think too much about it or use that concept. Uh, that, uh, but if we don't, we're never going to be free because it's like being sick. Until you're sick and know you're sick and admit you're sick, you can't go to the doctor and get healed or get help. And if you keep denying it, and some people are very good at denial when it comes to their physical health, uh, they'd rather just stay away from the doctor and pretend that everything's okay until the day they keel over, and uh, then it's too late. And that's okay, that's a legitimate way to live, a not entirely wise way to live, but a legitimate way. But denial isn't a good way to get rid of stuff, and the concept of sin is an important part of the process of getting well in Christ. Now, in terms of the tongue, let me uh, say one other thing, why this subject that I think is worth addressing or thinking about today you, I'm sure you're aware of the lack of civility, as it's called in political discussion these days. There's a lot of name-calling going on. And, um, but you know what? When I hear the name-calling, it seems like it's just another reality TV show or, or sitcom to me. I mean, it sounds very familiar to what... People are sitting around gazing at all night long in front of their uh, idiot boxes anyway. And this is all the same language and the same shallow thinking. And doesn't seem very shocking to me. Uh, but it seems very shocking in that context. And I do think there is a problem with it. But the problem is not really with the politicians. The problem is with our society. And I think a lot of Christians even think it's cool to just jump in and, and act like that and speak in those ways to show how cool and, and acceptable they are. And some people never have much trouble with their language and some people do have trouble with their language because people are different. I admit that that's a struggle for me. Um, I learned how to swear in English and Dutch when I was growing up. Living in a Dutch community, uh, people have asked me, well, do, can you speak the Dutch language? And I said, minimally, and I've been trying hard to forget it all of my life because what I learned working for Dutch immigrant dairy farmers was only the things that they didn't want anybody to recognize, and so they swore in Dutch and spoke in English. And I think it worked good for them 
But growing up as a young man, it gave me uh, what you might call a bilingual way of expressing myself in a not too healthy way. But it's always been a struggle for me in terms of language, partly because I am a what you might call a wordsmith. I like, I read a lot, and um, and putting things in in terms that um, that have an impact both on myself or on other people is something that I enjoy, and I I like hearing songs and poems and uh, and and reading literature that where it is direct and to the point and sometimes that involves bad language and which doesn't particularly bother me when it's in context but it's also a problem if somebody likes those kind of things you're going to be drawn to that and your fallback or default position could well be the expressing yourself in ways that aren't very healthy or aren't very good in some things that you really don't want uh, for example your kids to pick up because not just because there's a rule against it but because it's going to be a stumbling block to them in getting on in life. I'm surely you know that uh, that people's language is one of the problems when they go to get a job or when they try to manage other people or try to communicate with their neighbors that your language is going to be a problem. And as Christians and the followers of Jesus we are attempting to uh, let people know that there's something about us that has put us in the light and out of the darkness, if that is in fact our experience, then how we communicate verbally does matter. And they pick it up. And it's not just as simple as swear words or cuss words. It's interest in uh, things that most people consider off-color or dirty or the language in all kind of ways that really sort of make people think, you're kind of shallow and trivial, you know that? And people do respond that way, whether you like it or not. You can demand your right to speak any way you want. It is okay in America. We do have freedom of expression. But uh, I think what shocks a lot of people about the di political discussion these days is that people are doing it openly and people on both sides of the fence are now speaking that way. There are ways, by the way, to speak uh, ill of others without using foul language or direct language. I read an article in um, New York Times here the other day. Uh, John Stewart, some of you know who he is, late night television, but he's, uh, he's a comedian. And uh, uh, this, this author was suggesting that John Stewart is the liberal version of Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, on a conservative side, spoke, speaks aggressively and sometimes offensively. And John Stewart, on the liberal side, speaks in a sophisticated sort of insulting way. So what's the difference in the end? Would you rather get hit in the face with a fist or stabbed in the back with a nice, slick, pearl-handled stiletto knife? In the end, words can damage other people, whether they're slick and educated or whether they're crude and abusive. And uh, there's no way around the fact that the way we communicate, whether we're slick and educated or the educated elite or the bourgeoisie or however you call it, uh, or whether you're the working class, blue collar. A lot of people, a lot of people were shocked to hear Rush Limbaugh talk, for example, on the radio. But when I first heard him, 
I was kind of reminded of everything I knew before I was 24 years old. I was a farmer, a soldier, and a truck driver before I ever set foot in a classroom, a college classroom. And I didn't even know there was classes of people in terms of education and how they insult others. And believe me, you can insult others both crudely or in a slippery manner. Either way, it's using our language to tear down rather than build up. Taming the tongue, chapter 3 of James, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Now this is in reference to the story I told you about the guy who claimed to be sanctified and not sin for 18 years. Uh, James, in writing, James, this, by the way, uh, might well have been the brother of Jesus, not the apostle James, but he doesn't really identify himself any further than being James. And the target of his letter is to the Jewish Christians around the Mediterranean world and not a specific place. That's why this is one of the seven Catholic epistles, it's called, being, meaning universal, as opposed to targeting a certain spot. So he's simply addressing people who, first of all, the problem was people were teaching some false doctrines to them. And this moves them into the subject of how communication matters to, in the Christian world to the disciples of Jesus. Many of you should not presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. What he's saying is that those who want to set themselves up in a position of prominence or teaching are going to be judged not just by God but by other people more strictly. You know the story of Moses in the Old Testament how uh, one time he struck the rock and God punished him by not letting him go into the Holy Land for striking the rock. Now, compared to what some of the other people were doing, that didn't seem like a very, very big issue, did it? But he was standing in the shoes of a spokesman for God. Before we go on in the passage itself, let me draw your attention to four other passages of Scripture, and we'll just start with the first one up there, uh, authenticating evidence. These are other passages of scripture that have to do with the tongue and then we'll wrap this up by showing how James develops the subject in this letter, this third chapter. Authenticating evidence is one way that's an obvious way. Jesus introduced it and the Apostle Paul developed it further by in this passage in Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I think this is an important instruction about the process of salvation. It's important because he's, he's really crystallizing. Paul, the theologian, is really crystallizing the idea of how are you saved? Uh, a month ago we had a service in this church for Dave Davis, uh, as many of you were here, and uh, afterwards I was talking to a young man and who was, I don't remember his connection with Dave, and uh, we're talking about his faith. And he said, I said, I invited him to, well, you know, if you really want to try a church, he had grown up in some 
as a preacher's kid or something and didn't want anything to do with it and this was his story to me anyway and and uh and i invited him well give this church a try he said well i really liked what went on here today that was if that's what it's like and he said but but in reality i'm kind of looking for a faith that isn't so easy as a lot of christians make it out to be grace what where's the responsibility and the earning of your place with God and with heaven is that's what I'm looking for and I I said well you know what there's really quite a few options along that line I can refer you to some of those uh, we don't really consider those approaches authentically Christian because Jesus is the one who introduced the notion of spiritual rebirth by grace resulting in works and values and practices including tongue control or mouth control that's a result not a cause of salvation we're not in the ladder climbing business in this church because the bible is is very clear on that subject it's consistent on that subject that james in fact is an interesting book on that line because he's actually says faith without works is dead and here he's actually carrying this on and saying if uh, your tongue and the way you speak is one of the works we're talking about here. If you talk like everybody else, there is no evidence that you are the real deal. Uh, because talking is part of how you live. Well, as human beings, we are communicators. It's one of the distinctive features of the homo sapien space species uh, that we are communicators. In fact, it might be one of the most distinctive features about who we are. We can articulate ideas, bring them out, talk, and people can talk back and forth and share ideas uh, by the hour. And this is who we are. And if it doesn't affect that, then it's not real. So go back to the starting point and don't be looking for a way that will get you to God and get you a place in eternity or a hierarchy by doing the good deeds, but look for a reflection of who you are, what your heart condition really is. And this is why the Apostle Paul exposits it in this way. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's a heart issue. But if it doesn't reflect somehow in what you say, in taking the next step of bringing it out of your heart into articulation, then it's not real because you do articulate everything. I, it doesn't take me long, and I'm sure you're the same way, to figure out what really makes people tick, what they like in life, what their values are in life. If they like money, if they worship money, everything goes to money all the time. If they like physical beauty, they're always commenting on what people look like. If, if their social standing is what they worship, that's what they're always talking about. Uh, there's all, there's, it's easy to pick up what people really value in life. And this is what Paul is saying here. This is how it goes from being God's work to your partnership. His grace calls you and changes you. You articulate it, express it, and work it out. And this is how it starts. And Paul explains it as a theological concept there. Now, the next verse, going back here, clear to the wisdom literature, uh, looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. It is better not to make a vow 
than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. I have always had a problem with high-pressure altar calls and commitment experiences in churches, camps, evangelistic crusades. I've had a problem because I know this passage. But I also know the principle behind it. It's not that hard to sway people to commit to something if you're good enough at it. Uh, in fact, the better you are at community, the more likely you are to make a billion dollars. Uh, because you can get people to part with their money. You can get people to come forward at an altar call. You can get them to do all kinds of things that God isn't motivating them to do. But you're doing it. And you put them in a position when you do that of having to break their public vows before God and by, by, by manipulation means. I think it's wrong. It's a form of blasphemy. It's putting yourself in the place of God and say, now this God wants you. This is your calling and I have determined this is your calling. God wants you to part with your money. God wants you to come forward and say yes to Jesus. Yes, he does want you to do all of these things. But he's not telling you, manipulating you, guilt-tripping you, because that's not the way God works. God is a respecter of boundaries. Look at how Jesus operated. Never once did he after go after people. Never once did he manipulate people, use a bait-and-switch tactic. Never once. His tactic was always upfront, open, and honest. This is about God. And that was Jesus, who is God. And he's suggesting here that you use your mouth carefully with God. Paul brings this up in the New Testament in terms of the Lord's Supper. He said, he said, tells them there that, you know what? Uh, this, is, this can be a dangerous game you're playing here. If you're a phony, and you're bringing your sin to the table and just doing a religious gimmick, pretending you're engaging the body and the blood of Jesus. This could kill you. It's actually what he says. This could kill you. Uh, God will kill you if that's how you blaspheme his beloved son. And that's 1 Corinthians 11. You can read it. Uh, but that's the same principle. Better not to do things that you don't mean when it comes to God. He's still God. Defense measures. The next verse. This is also from the wisdom literature. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down in the inmost parts. A gossip betrays a confidence. So avoid anyone who talks too much. That's where the song comes in. You talk too much. Sometimes, you know, just talking too much is a problem. And this is men and women, by the way, this whole gossip thing. Now, not all communication about other people is gossip. That's how we know what's going on in people's lives. If you've ever lived in a small town, you're well aware of this. Gossip is a problem. Uh, we lived on an island for 13 years. Gossip was a problem. But the good side of it was that people knew what was going on, and often they showed up to help before you even, uh, before you even uh, put the word out that you needed any kind of help. That's community. Churches can operate that way too. But there is a line between communicating what's necessary and good and gossip, which is tearing down other people or communicating unnecessary information. And his suggestion here... The wise man, Solomon's suggestion is just, uh, just avoid some people. If they drag you down, if you don't want to be around the gossip, uh, just avoid them. Uh, that's okay. That's a good thing. 
you don't need to be there. And if you participate, it takes a speaker and a listener to do gossip, is what he's suggesting. And you're a participant. And that's the use of the mouth in a negative way. But here's the use of a mouth in a positive way. Proverbs 25, verse 11 and 12. Another Old Testament wisdom portion of Proverbs, two Proverbs from the Old Testament. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise man's rebuke to a listening ear. Sometimes it's good to speak up. It's good to challenge each other about things, but directly, face to face. And it's also good to encourage people and to speak up when they need encouragement. That's, the mouth can be used in a way to drag down or a way to build up. And he's suggesting not the vacuum approach. He's not saying just never talk, a vow of silence. He's suggesting that you turn your communication and think about whether it's positive, edifying, building up, or whether it tears down. My mother used to have a saying, if you can't, think of, if you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything at all. But it stands out in my mind as one of those repeated Proverbs that are worth thinking about and maybe putting on your wall. If you can't say something good about somebody, just don't say anything at all about them. It's a lot more fun, of course, to say bad things, to tear people down. It's, uh, it's part of the entertainment and part of the entertainment that we like about politics. It's uh, pretty amazing sometimes to hear the way people speak about politicians. And a lot of times what they're complaining about is the way the politicians speak. You get the joke there, right? The people speaking about the way the politicians are speaking are the people who are doing the exact same thing about them. And they're upset that somebody else, I guess, got the number and started to use it themselves in public. Now let's go back to James, and we'll finish this passage here through verse 12. Verse 3 says, When we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. In verse 5, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. It's getting kind of strong here about the power of the tongue. Not just to affect other people now, in this case, but to affect yourself. Have you ever spent any time regretting something you've said? If you haven't, please do. Because if you're one of those people who never thinks that you have a problem and everybody else has a problem. I have noticed this about people. That people who feel free to criticize others in the name of honesty are usually the quickest to be offended when somebody says something about them in the name of honesty. Have you noticed that? That sometimes... Thin-skinned people often feel free to assault others verbally and it's their right. But if somebody does it to them, it's, that's 
evil, bad. That can't be done. This is me, the glorious one. You can't criticize me. So that's just an ego problem. But he's suggesting here that it's a good thing. It does not, the tongue and the things you say and the trouble you get into with your mouth does hurt other people, but it also hurts you. And people have damaged themselves for life. You know this from the public discussion. People have damaged their careers, uh, political careers and otherwise, just by things that they have said, which they would love to turn the clock back and take back. Uh, I know that I struggle sometimes with things that I've said. Even sometimes on Monday, I spend a lot of energy worrying about something I said on Sunday in the pulpit. Because often I have no idea who I'm offending until 24 hours later it dawns on me that somebody could have been offended by that. Now most people say, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Nevertheless, that's the genius of a megachurch. You don't know anybody in it. Mega church pastors rarely know more than 10 people in their whole church. And in a smaller church, you tend to know everybody. And eventually, you know that you're going to hurt somebody's feelings and they're going to think you're targeting them, even though you might not have been. And frequently, I don't realize it until the next day or the next week. But that's the way it's supposed to be. I think we ought to worry about how we speak. The tongue is a fire. Think about the damage you can do to the people around you with the gossip you start or the names that you call. And then think about how this is going to harm you in the end by all of the guilt about something you cannot get back. Once that word is out of your mouth or that expression or that gossip is out of your mouth, it's gone. Its effect is going to do what it does whether you want it to or not. And there are ways to learn from those things. And uh, sometimes it's even appropriate to ask the Lord to uh, protect people from the damage of the things you say. I think that's a good prayer, don't you? He says in verse 7, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed, have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now, he's obviously using a figure of speech. I'm sure that James knows that the tongue is not an independent part of the body. The tongue is an expression of your mind and your thoughts. It's the tool by which those thoughts get out into the air. James knows this. He's using this as a figure of speech or a metaphor to show that you need to get control of this little object, not the tongue. You can tie it up. I've heard of people tie. Uh, people have even cut their tongues off uh, just to solve this problem. And you can still go on harming people with the pen or uh, some other ways. Uh, but so the tongue is he's talking about is uh, just uh, an expression or a metaphor for public communication, speaking to others. And verse nine: With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. 
We'll stop here with that discussion about the tongue with the way that he concludes that portion of his challenge to them. As with all of the New Testament letters, challenges to the Christians, he keeps going back to the argument, I'm not giving you a list of rules, what you can say and not say. I know that sometimes churches in the past have kind of had a code. These are words you can say, and these are words you cannot say. And that's not very effective. That's legalism, and it really does not work. So James, just like Paul, when we looked at Ephesians 5, he's saying the same thing. The problem here is that this is not a reflection of who you are in Jesus. Assuming that who you are in Jesus is real. This is why he keeps going back to this as evidence, as a reflection of or become what you are. When you know Jesus and walk with Jesus and are filled with the Holy Spirit, or at least want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then these are areas that need to be brought into line. We are participants, partners with God. He's the one that motivates us, gives us the power to make the change, and someday we'll even remove the downward gravitational pull from our presence. He's the one that will do all that, but he respects our boundaries. God does. And we get to participate. Going back to what Paul said, with the heart man believes, but with the mouth confession is made to salvation. This is the transference, the participation. You accept what's done, you engage it, and now you go with it and work with it and make it your own. And that's what he, James is suggesting, the same principle in every area of our life. So here's a question that I have for you to be thinking about that need to be cleared out because you regret how you have used your words. And I think I should add to this now what goes on in social media. A lot of times uh, people feel like, well, since you're not looking at anybody in the face, Whatever I do on Facebook or any other form of social media, internet, um, really isn't as bad. Oh, don't count on that. Uh, you can't get it back. You know, this is, uh, this is advice that people get or should be getting all the time in regard to employment, kids, college kids, students. You know what? What you put out there will be there forever. Your prospective employer is going to get it. Count on it. Now, recently, there's new law passed in Oregon that employers can't force you to give away your Facebook password so they can look at it, befriend you, but you've got to be a pretty dumb employer to not be able to get at people's social media. It's, uh, it's easily done, and that's just a good reminder because it's the same principle. We think that there are ways now that we found that we can just say whatever we want, tear people down, trash anybody we want, and we're going to get away with it. Don't count on it. But as Christians, this should never be our consideration because God is always listening to what we say and reading. What, God can't read? You put it on Facebook, God can't read. He's old-fashioned. He doesn't, he doesn't even have a Facebook account. Really? God is there all the time. And this is what James is challenging him with. If you just do what matches 
the values that you know are the values of Jesus, the values of the Holy Spirit. You just do that in your own life. It covers a lot of ground. If we speak the truth, keep control of our tongues, and what we put out into the media, uh, and we do it because we're trying to please God with what comes out of our minds first and our mouths second or even our fingertips if that's how we look at life covers a lot of ground it saves a lot of grief worry and even apologies later on don't you think so i'm just suggesting here there anything you need to square away with god in that area maybe an apology to somebody for something you've said some take back or make right something you put out there um, or some area that you've been um, sneaking around the fringes of God's value system that you think is not so important because it doesn't look like gross moral evil or something like that. Something having to do with your communication. Father, it's a lot easier to talk about you, sing about you, and even listen to your word, pay attention to your word here in church because this is a come apart sort of place for that purpose. So we really want you to be in our lives and our minds and our speech, our communication patterns all week long. We would like you to fill those areas with your spirit. We understand that this isn't always black and white or rule situation. But Lord, you will lead us, you will guide us and show us how to be obedient and then even prod us to be obedient in those areas of life. Thank you for working in our lives to make us productive and to have inner peace. In Jesus' name, amen.